This is episode 250 of the Prepper Website Podcast, where I connect you with resources that will help you live a more self-reliant life. Today's articles are, Seed Saving is Neither Difficult Nor Complicated, and The Brutal Truth About Violence When the SHTF. Hey, I'm Todd Sepulveda, the editor of PrepperWebsite.com. This podcast is an audible version, with some commentary, of articles that have been posted on Prepper Website, a daily curation of preparedness information. These articles are some of the best of the best that have been recently posted on PrepperWebsite.com. All article links and show information can be found on the PrepperWebsitePodcast.com. Hey, before we get started, I'd like to welcome all our new listeners. If you are not subscribed, make sure you do that in iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcast network, and that way you can ensure you never miss another podcast episode. Hey, I want to start off really quick with just something that uh, Ray put out on the Facebook group uh, a couple of days ago. He said, um, I was wondering what impact the pole flip will have on compass navigation. And, uh, you know, he's like, serious question here. And, uh, you know, so I was curious as well. So I went searching and actually went to NASA and found a, an article. And basically when the pole shift, so if you have a compass that is, you know, that's not digital, that, you know, one of those old compasses, like maybe when you were in Boy Scouts or whatever, that when the, when the poles shift, that you are going to see them. So the south, the north will actually be pointing to the south on the compass. So that's going to be something, uh, you know, something different out there uh, when that happens. But if you're interested in that, there is an article that I link to on uh, in the Facebook group underneath Ray's question. And uh, you can go read a little bit more. That article is from uh, NASA. And so uh, you can go read what they're going to say about pole reversals and uh, and what happens there. And actually, you know, in the whole history of the world, that happens multiple times. So uh, there you go with that. Uh, let's go ahead and get into our first article of the podcast. It comes to us from ModernSurvivalBlog.com. This is a guest post and it's Again, it's entitled, Seed Saving is Neither Difficult Nor Complicated. And so this is one of the things that uh, if you are preparedness-minded, now I, I know there's a lot of preppers out there who, uh, and you know, actually this was big a couple of years ago, and uh, where you would buy those big seed vaults or, you know, or those things, and you'd put it up, and so if the poop hit the fan, you'd bust out your seed vault and all of a sudden become this great gardener, Right. And so uh, I know that they still sell them out there and, uh, you know, you, you definitely can buy those if you want to buy those. One of the things uh, when you consider buying one of those is you want to make sure that uh, the seeds that are in that seed vault are specific to your zone. Because if you're buying a seed vault for, uh, you know, for zone nine and you are, you know, somewhere up north in, in a different zone, then uh, you know that's not really going to pan out for you. So you want to make sure that you know you're doing that at least. But then there's a lot of people out there who garden and they just go and get seed. Uh, you know every every year they'll order it from a catalog or they'll go to even like Home Depot or Lowe's, Lowe's where you can buy seed and uh, you know go go at it from there. And they're not very sure about how you would actually save seeds from year to year to year. To make sure that you, you know, if if you were in a situation where you couldn't go to Home Depot or you were in a situation where you couldn't order from the catalog, how would you be able to have enough seed or how would you know to have or, or what would you do to have seed for the next year's gro- crops? 
And so that's one of the, the things that uh, when you think about living that self-reliant life and thinking the big picture, looking years down the road, you know, that, that's a skill that you might need. The thing is, is that it's not very hard. It's not very difficult. And so this article provides you a little bit of information uh, and then maybe some ideas so that you can go research. And then there is a, a book recommendation here that, uh, that I like that I actually have. So let's go ahead and start reading this one. Seed saving is not difficult. The hardest part of seed saving is knowing when and how the particular crop produces seeds. Some seed in the spring, some in the fall, some the second year. Some have seed pods and some have fruit. If seeds come from inside the edible fruit like tomatoes, squash, and peaches, let one fruit ripen on the plant and harvest the seeds from that. This may seem like a no-brainer, but I've lost track of how many times someone said, wait, I can't plant that. The fruit will have to be fully ripe, so don't try saving seeds from a soft edible squash, for example. Many varieties of squash will be so hard when they're ripe, you may end up breaking them open with a sledgehammer. But by the time a tomato is ready to eat, the seeds are fully ripe and can be harvested. Viability goes down considerably if seeds are harvested too soon. And I just want to uh, also point out in this article, there's a lot of pictures. And uh, so I'm not going to refer to all those pictures, but you definitely want to come check this out. It's best to let the seed fruits dry on the plant. If that's not possible, harvest them at peak maturity and let them continue to ripen in a protected place. Carefully separate the seeds from the flesh, but don't worry about the fragility of the seeds. These seeds want to survive and they're hardened for abuse. Many can travel through the digestive system of an animal and come out unharmed, so a strainer and kitchen sink aren't going to hurt them. If they seem unnecessarily fragile, you may have harvested too soon. Clean and dry your seeds. They, may, they must be completely dry or you'll get mold in storage. Some seeds, such as tomatoes, have a protective layer over the seeds that keep them from germinating. So cleaning is especially important with these. Keep your seeds in a cool, dry place to plant the next spring. Harvest seeds from the best. Part of seed saving is making sure that your plants Fill your needs for the foreseeable future and not just for today. So you want to save the seeds that will pass on the best traits. Lack of pollination and insect damage aren't desirable traits. If you like the taste of one plant over another, make that your seed plant. Mark it so you don't accidentally harvest and eat your seeds. And yes, I have done that. If you really don't like the taste of another, cull it. A little privation of your favorite flavors now will assure those flavors will be available in future years. If one plant wilts in the morning sun while another stays strong, cull the weak and do not save seeds from it. If one plant turns yellow or doesn't thrive under your conditions, pull it. If seed longevity is your goal, as it should be for long-term survival, wait a few years before you plant to make sure you harvest only from seeds that have that trait. If you want drought tolerance, plant in dry conditions and harvest seeds from the best that survive. Over time, you should get plants and fruit that best suit your needs. Of course, this implies that no other pollen is getting into your seed plants. If you plant more than one variety of the same species, such as two different kinds of summer squash, they'll cross and you may get a hybrid the next year. If this isn't desirable, consider only planting one variety each year. 
even if they are biennials, and seed the next spring. Only one will seed at a time. For further isolation, such as for plants that have been approved for genetic modification, I make small bags of light gauze and yarn to pull over the flowers. When I isolate in this way, I pollinate with a paintbrush so I have complete control over which plants cross. The following is basic information for a few of the more common garden plants. Longevity relies on storage and growing conditions. So grains. Most wind pollinate. If there are farmers in the area growing these, you may not be able to keep pure seed. Depending on variety and conditions, pollen can travel as much as 5 miles. Corn pollen travels less than 100 feet under normal conditions, but has been known to travel further with wind. Seeds will last indefinitely. Greens. Most will go to seed the same year. Spinach has male and female plants, so you need both for seeds. Brassicas, like kale, collards, broccoli, etc., will often not self-pollinate, so you need at least two plants. Most are technically biennials, but may go to seed the first year. The broccoli you harvested is the immature flower head, so you'll need to let it go to seed. Seeds will last a minimum of two years, but I've seen them last upwards of 10 without loss of viability. Root crops. Beets and onions will bolt the second year and go to seed then. If you plant beets or onions for seed, put your seed plants in an area where they won't be disturbed for two years. Depending on your conditions, you may need to lift them and store until spring. Garlic does not seed easily and is propagated mostly through bulbs. Seeds will last a minimum of two years, but I've seen them last upwards of 10 without loss of viability. Beans. May cross, but usually don't. Let a few bushes go to seed and dry on the vine for seed next year. If seeds are small and shriveled, they were harvested too early and might not germinate. Seeds will last between 5 and 10 years. If you can cook the bean, you can probably grow it. Tomatoes. May cross, but it's unlikely. Keep seeds from those you harvest to eat. Seeds will last about five years. Peppers. If you grow more than one variety, they'll need to be separated by 10 feet or more to get pure seed. Otherwise, just let a few dry on the vine. Seeds will last at least three years. Peas. Choose the best plants, full pods, best taste, and let the peas dry on the vine. Watch out for pea weevil as the larva eats the seed from the inside. Seeds will last about five years. And uh, so that's, that's the end of it. And then Ken came in at the end with just a, a recommendation of a book. He said, some of you may be interested in the following book on seed saving. I picked this up several years ago. And it's called Seed to Seed, Seed Saving and Growing Techniques for Vegetable Gardeners. Uh, and so I think this is one that uh, you definitely want to have. Uh, I, I have it and it is very... Um, I mean, it just it's just very thorough. There's a lot of different types of seeds in here, and it'll walk you through what you need to know. Um, just like uh, a lot of comments over here at the at modernsurvivalblog.com, this article has 69 comments, and so uh, definitely one that you might want to uh, to check out. A lot of information there, especially if you are into gardening or you want to get into gardening and seed saving. Uh, you know, that would be. Uh, a real great skill to have. 
I'm reminded of one of those survival books books that I uh, read early, early on. Uh, I think it was Patriots again. You know, I've been uh, referencing Patriots here uh, a while now. But uh, one of the one of the family members, actually, it was uh, one of the it was like a grandmother type was letting her daughter know to, or you know helping her to prepare uh, for the, for the collapse, and they kind of see saw things coming, I guess. And so this woman bought a lot of seed. And uh, so when the poop hit the fan, she was able to sell seed to people to be able to start gardening. And, you know, basically, so if you think about like a a package of seed that you would get at Home Depot now for 99 cents, she bought those and then she would like give five seeds or sell five or, or, or six seeds at a time to different people. And so, so she wound up starting her own business. So that seed took on, uh, you know, she sold that or traded and bartered. And so she wound up opening her own store uh, doing that. And so the skill to be able to have that, although it's not very difficult, would be very important to have uh, in in a situation like this. So that's over at modernsurvivalblog.com. Make sure you go check that out. Again, uh, there's a lot of pictures and stuff there that uh, you can't always see on on a podcast, but you can always go over there and I link to all the articles in the show notes or uh, you can come over to episode 250 and check in, you know, check out the article, just link straight to that one. All right. Our next article comes to us from theorganicprepper.com. Daisy uh, did another interview with Selco and this one is entitled The Brutal Truth About Violence When SHTF uh, or When the SHTF. And uh, so I think this is one of those that you don't always, you know, you don't always consider. You, you might read the books, you, you read the prepper fiction, you might see the movies. But Selko was one who kind of went through this, uh, this collapse in, in Bosnia. And so uh, you know, actually Daisy talks a little bit about that. But he goes into what violence looked like. And I think this is very beneficial for us who... Um, try to imagine. I mean, because really, a lot of the times, it's it's what you imagine. Again, the books, the movies, all those kinds of things, and then what's in your head, and and you like, hey, so what's going on? What what do you, you know? How do people devolve into uh, you know to violence, or what happens when the poop hits the van, fan? And so uh, Selko really talks a little bit about this and give us gives us a little bit of insight into it. So let's go ahead and read this one again at the or, theorganicprepper.com. Are you prepared for the extreme violence that is likely to come your way if the SHTF? No matter what your plan is, it's entirely probable that at some point you'll be the victim of violence or have to perpetuate violence to survive. As always, Selko is our go-to guy on SHTF reality checks, and this thought-provoking interview will shake you to your core. If you don't know Selko, he's from Bosnia and he lived through a year in a city that was blockaded with no utilities, no deliveries of supplies, and no services. In his interview, he shares what the scenarios the rest of us theorize about were really like. He mentioned to me recently that most folks aren't prepared for the violence that is part and parcel of a collapse, which brings us to today's interview. And so uh, I want to mention, like always, when I read uh, one of Selko's articles or when he's being interviewed, I will read it exactly like uh, it's written. A lot of the times I, I'm correcting things when I'm reading. Sometimes that's my, maybe why you you know, you know hear me stumble or whatever. I'm correcting on the fly sometimes uh, just so it sounds right. But 
Wasalko because uh, just to kind of give you the effect of what it might sound like uh, if he was in front of you and, and actually talking. You know, there's some uh, definitely broken English there uh, because English is not his first language. So I just want to let you know that I will be reading it like, uh, like, like it's written down. So the first question is, how prevalent was the violence when the SHTF in Bosnia? It was wartime and chaos from all conflicts in those years in the Balkan region. Bosnian conflict was most brutal because of multiple reasons, historical, political, and others. To simplify the explanation why violence was common and very brutal, you need to picture a situation where you are bombarded with huge amounts of information or propaganda, which instills in you very strong feelings of fear and hate. Out of fear and hate, violence grows easy and fast. And over the very short period of time, you see how people around you, including you, do things that you could not have imagined before. I can say that violence was almost an everyday thing in the whole spectrum of different activities because it was a fight for survival. Again, whenever and wherever you put people in a region without enough resources, you can expect violence. We were living a normal life and then suddenly we were thrown in a way of living where if you could not negotiate something with someone, you solved the problem by launching a rocket from an RPG through the window of his living room. Hate stripped down the layers of humanity and suddenly it was normal to level an apartment building with people inside with shells from a tank or from private prisons with imprisoned civilians for slave work or sex slaves. Nothing that I saw or read before could have prepared me for the level of violence and blindness to it for the lives of kids, elders, civilians, and the innocent. Again, the thing that is important for readers is that we were a modern society one day and then in few weeks it turned into carnage. Do not make the mistake of saying it cannot happen here because I made that mistake too. Do not underestimate the power of propaganda, fear, hate, and the lowest human instincts no matter how modern and good your society is right now and how deeply you believe that it cannot happen here. Question. You've mentioned warlords and gangs in several of your articles. Were they responsible for the majority of the violence or was it hungry families? Fighting of the armies through the whole period of war brings violence in terms of constant shelling from a distance from different kinds of weapons. For example, a few multiple rocket launchers could bring in 30 seconds the destruction in an area of three to four apartment buildings and being there in that moment and surviving it gives you a completely new view on life. Snipers were a constant threat and over time you simply grow a way of living that you constant scan area in front of you where your next steps going to be. Are you going to be visible and from where etc. Most brutal violence was actually lawlessness and complete lack of order between different factions and mil militias. So in some periods there were militias or gangs who simply ruled the cities or part of the city where they were absolutely masters of everything in terms of deciding of taking someone's life. In lawlessness, you as one person could be really small and not interesting or join some bigger group of people to be stronger, some family or militia or gang. An example of a gang would be a group of people of some 300 to 500 people who officially were a unit or militia and operate for some faction, but in reality they operate mostly for themselves. 
That included owning part of the black market, having prison for forced labor or ransom, attacking people and houses for resources, smuggling people from dangerous areas. Violence from those kinds of group was the most immediate violence, the most visible in terms of SHTF talking. If those people came on your door, you could obey, fight, or negotiate, but mostly you could not ask for help from any kind of authority because there was no real authority. In any society, no matter where you are living, there are a great number of people who are waiting for the SHTF to go out and do violent things. Small-time criminals or simply violent persons who are not openly violent because system is there to punish them for that. It is like that. Some gang leaders that I knew were actually completely sick people with a strange type of charisma that makes people follow them. Weird situations that can happen only in a real collapse. They are people who just waited for their time to rise. Those kinds of people, together with criminal organizations that are already there in any city in the world, will be the backbone of SHTF gangs. Another question. Who were the most likely victims? A very simple answer would be that the most likely victims were people who had interesting things without enough defense. But it was not always that simple. For example, one of the first houses that got raided in my neighborhood right at the beginning of collapse while there was still some kind of order was a rich family's home. They had a nice house with bars on the windows, a pretty good setup for defense, and they had enough people inside so they could give pretty good resistance to the mob. But they got raided simply because they were known that they are rich, so they were attacked with enough force to be overwhelmed. It was not only about how much manpower you had and how well organized defense your home was, it was all about how juicy a target you were. If you are faced with 150 angry people attacking your home because they are sure you have good stuff inside, your chances are low, no matter how good and tough you are. People who were alone were a pretty easy target and old people without support of family or friends. It was not always about killing someone or violence. For example, if you were alone and without resources but you had something else valuable like some kind of skill or knowledge, you could easily be recruited for some faction or group, not by your will of course. Next question. What were some ways to prevent yourself from becoming a victim of violence? How do you recommend that people prepare themselves for the possibility of violence? It can be done in steps or in layers. Do not be interesting or attract attention with the SHTF. This means a lot of things for this article. I can give a few examples with shortened explanation because it is a huge topic. Do not look like a prepper before or after SHTF. There is no sense in announcing that you are prepping for EMP, civil collapse, apocalypse, or whatever. With that, you are risking the probability that when the SHTF, people will remember that you have interesting things in your home. Your home should look ordinary. For example, if you are living in the city on a street where all houses look similar, there is not much sense in making your house look like a fortress. You'll just attract attention. Your defense should be based on more subtle means. Some examples are having means to reinforce doors and windows quickly when you need it or to reinforce them from inside. Make changes in your yard to funnel possible attackers where you want them to be. Trees, fence, bush. You can make your home look abandoned or already looted. Think about what survival is. Survival is about staying alive. It is not about being comfortable at the expense of losing your life. 
I have seen many times people lose their life simply because they were too attached to their belongings, house, car, land, goods, so they simply did not want to leave something and run in a particular moment. Everything can be earned and bought again except life. Forget about statements like, I will defend it with my life or over my dead body, or similar because the real SHTF is usually not heroic or noble. It is hard and brutal. When you are gone, you are gone, and there might be nobody to take care of your family just because you have been stubborn or trusted in movies when it came to violence. To rephrase it, be ready to leave your home in a split second if that means you and your family will survive, no matter how many good things you have stored there. Be mentally ready for violence. In a way, it is impossible to be ready for violence, especially widespread violence when the SHTF, but you can minimize shock when that happens with some things. If you are not familiar with what violence is, you can try to get yourself close to it today in normal times. It can be done, for example, by doing some voluntary work, uh, for example, in a local hospital, ER, or similar, or simply by working with homeless people. Sounds may be strange, but activities like this can get you a bit of a feeling of what it is all about, not to mention that you can learn some practical and useful skills for SHTF. Have means and skills physically to defend or to do violence. No matter how old or young you are, your gender or religion, I assure you that you are capable of doing violence. It is only a matter of the situation and how far you are going to be pushed. It is not just some people are capable of violence. Everybody is capable. Not everybody enjoys doing it or is willing to do it so easily. In today, normal times, you can learn some violent skills and you should do it. Again, no matter if you are a woman or old or young. You should own a weapon and know how to use it. You should practice with it or have at least some basic knowledge about hand-to-hand -hand combat. The worst case scenario is to have a weapon that you try for the first time when SHTF. Be familiar with your means for defense. Let your family members know what they need to do in case of an attack of your home. Have a plan and go through it. Only through practice will you minimize chances for mistakes. Use common sense. I know a lot of survivalists almost dream about how they are going to use weapons against bad guys when SHTF and that they will be something like superheroes from movies, saving innocents and killing villains. Truth is that in a real collapse, a lot of things are going, a lot of things are kind of blurred and you are not sure who the bad guys are. Good guys turn out to be lunatic gang members who want to bring food to their kids. There are no superheroes when SHTF, and if some of them show up, they end up dead quickly. There is only you and your skills and mindset and what you are prepared. Use violence as a last resort because of the simple fact that by using violence, you are risking of getting killed or hurt. Remember, when SHTF, there is maybe no doctor or hospital to take care of your wounds. It is a time when even a small cut can eventually kill you through infection and lack of proper care. Next question. I'm a single mom with a household full of girls. In an SHTF situation, what would our best strategies be to remain safe? Just like I have mentioned before, strategy is always same for any part of survival, and shooting from the rifle is pretty similar no matter are you a man or a woman. Being single mom with household full of girls on first look make you as an ideal target in some situations. But we are talking here in prepper terms, so there is no reason not to be perfectly well prepared as a single mom with girls. 
But yes, I admit it is not perfect situation. Even if you are prepared well, some things are sure you need to connect with other people even more. House with couple of girls will always look like easy prey for some people. It is like that. Next question. Were people in the city safer than people in the country? Can you tell us more about rural living during this time? In my case, definitely no. In the essence, it always came to the resources and people. City meant more people, less resources. Country or rural meant less people, more resources. And because that level of violence simply was lower, that was most important reason. There are a few more reasons why it was much better in the country. People in the country or rural settings were much more quote-unquote connected to ground. They were more tough, if you like. They grew their own food, had cattle, lived more simple life prior to SHTF, and when everything collapsed, they had less problems getting used to it. Yes, they also did not have electricity and phones or running water or connections to other places, but they adapted easier to the new life because they had more useful skills than people in the city. Life was harder for them, too, than prior to the collapse, but they had means to get resources, land, wood, river. Another thing is that the people in small rural communities in the country were more connected to each other. People knew their neighborhood, and some other things were easier to organize, like community security watch, help in case of diseases, and similar. Okay, so I'm going to stop here just really quick. Um... So two things. The first thing is I thought in previous articles, uh, I would have to go back and try to find it, that Selko actually said the opposite, that he said that it was uh, worse for the rural uh, people because those that were surrounding the cities that, you know, there was nowhere for those people in the rural settings to go. And so those people just kind of got overrun and, uh, you know, their farms and stuff like that were taken away from them. Maybe I'm mistaken. I can't remember quite uh, quite sure. But I remember that, you know, when I've read the two people. So the other thing was that uh, Fernando Aguirre or Furfall, who uh, wrote, uh, who you know, about the collapse in Argentina, uh, talked about uh, the rural, you know, the rural uh, farmers and stuff like that, that it was more dangerous for them during the collapse because when people would go out to rob them and steal and kill and rape and those types of things. And there wasn't, you know, there wasn't neighbors around. So if you had a farm or whatever, you were kind of on your own to defend and you're working your farm, you're doing all that kind of stuff. You're tired, you go to bed and, and you can't always secure it all the time versus being in the city where, Uh, communities and neighborhoods band together. Now, the only difference here, Argentina wasn't a complete collapse, right? It was like an economic collapse. There was a spiral down, kind of like what Venezuela is experiencing right now, uh, you know, along those lines. The difference with Selco here is that it was a true collapse. I mean, there was nothing coming in, nothing coming out. Uh, It was like whatever you had, you're surviving on that. And uh, so it was a a true collapse scenario when you think about that. But again, I always remember kind of both the both of them said that Furfall and Selco both said that the rural communities had it the worst. But this article is saying something different. So maybe I just remember wrong. Uh, You know, that is that's quite possible there. Um, You know, if you're in a rural setting and you are in a real rural setting, so like you are way back there, that would be the safest place to be. Right. Uh, And of course, having neighbors. 
So kind of being on, I know James Wesley Rawls has talked about this before. You want to be on the back roads of the back roads of the back roads. And uh, sometimes that sucks when you're back there on the back roads of the back roads of the back roads and you forgot something and you want to run into town and go to the store because it takes you a long time to get there. Uh, but, you know, you are a little bit safer. Like, for instance, I've talked about my dad's property. Uh, we very rarely see cars go down the road when we're up there. You know, some people do, but uh, you know, it's very rare. It's the people who live right there. People aren't just, you know, cruising around uh, out for, uh, you know, a weekend cruise or whatever. Uh, that just doesn't happen. So uh, just wanted to kind of talk a little bit about that. So let me go ahead and continue on uh, with this next question that Daisy asked. What types of weapons did people have for self-defense? It was different political system prior to collapse where it was not so usual to own a weapon legally. And to own one illegally could mean a lot of troubles. Right prior to SHTF, it became possible to buy different weapons on the black market, but still, a majority of people did not own weapons. When it all collapsed, it was possible to get a weapon through trade. Because of the military doctrine here prior to the collapse, we used East Block weapons. A favorite was AK-47 in all different kinds of additions, or older weapons like M48 rifles, SKS rifle, 22, and similar. People used what they had, so in one period, you would be lucky if you had any kind of pistol and knife. Later, through the different channels, weapons became more available, so people had them more. A lot of that was actually junk that some warlords somehow imported. Weapons 50, 60 years old without proper ammunition or not in operating condition. A lot of people simply did not have a clue how to use any kind of weapon, so a lot of accidental deaths happened. I remember people storming abandoned army barracks that was mostly looted, but they found in one building a lot of RPGs while other part of the same building was burning. Two guys were trying to figure out a single use RPG and while they were messing with it clearly not knowing how that thing worked they accidentally armed it and launched a rocket that flew through the crowd not hurting anybody and exploding in wall 100 meters from where they stood they were smiling clearly happy because they thought they figured out how that thing worked next question what weapon do you suggest to have for SHTF it is a never-ending discussion and a favorite prepper topic, and I must say that whole discussion is overrated. I have used them in a real situation and tried and tested a lot of different kinds of weapons, and what works for me may simply not work for you. For example, here for me, good choice is AK-47 rifle. Maybe for you, wherever you, it is very bad choice. Good advice is you need to have a weapon that most people have around you. Because of multiple reasons, spare parts, repairing, ammunition availability, possibility that you can pick that rifle from other people and you know how to use it. What caliber and similar is matter of discussion again. I am talking from the point of owning a rifle. Another thing is that you need to know how that weapon works. Luckily, most of my readers live in an area where gun laws are great comparing to region where I am. You have much more choices when it comes to owning a weapon and practicing with it. Use that. And do not forget that using weapon in a real life situation is not like shooting at beer bottles with your friends after a barbecue. In real life, you might be in a situation to use a weapon 
while you are tired, dirty, and hungry, and while someone is screaming next to you. It is going to be maybe when you are not ready to do that, maybe in pitch dark, maybe after you have been awake for 48 hours. At least think about that. Next question is when should you use violence? Contrary to some popular belief in the prepper community, the point is to use violence only as a last solution. The reason is, as I mentioned already, the risk that you can be hurt or killed too, but also once you do violence, you change your own rules or push it more forward and it may be easy to get lost in violence. There are consequences to that and you are not going to be the same person ever again. Violence is a tool, not a toy. You need to know how to use it as best as possible, but also to avoid using it when it is not necessary. It is a good idea to set up a clear set of rules mentally too when you are going to use violence and to try to stick to it. For example, you will use weapon if someone tries to break your home and attack you, and you need to be ready to do that without hesitation. Next question. What else should we know about post-collapse violence? Think with your head and research. One thing that is absolutely important when it comes to understanding how violent it is going to be and what can you expect in your own case of SHTF is to understand how much media can influence people in making their decisions about violence. In my case, the media built up situation where people feared so much from other people that they actually hated them. They hated them so much that they actually stripped them down from humanity. In a real life example, it works in a way that people killed other people, including kids and women, because they hated them so much because media told them. It may look ridiculous and not possible to you, and you might again think that cannot happen here, but please trust your own resources. Look for independent information, not mainstream media in order to get the right information about what is really happening in the beginning of collapse. Do not be pulled into popular opinion just because the man from TV, whoever he might be, told you so. It is easier today because of the internet. You have much more choices for correct information than in my time. But still be careful. You might find yourself rioting together with 500 people just because you trusted some media. All right, so uh, guys, there's uh, more articles here if you want to read from Selco and uh, links uh, throughout this article that you can uh, kind of click on and uh, and get to other things here. The big takeaway for me was, or two big takeaways for me, uh, one of them was the media, you know, and, and propaganda and how uh, it was fed to everyone to cause everyone to hate each other. And when you really you think about the media, you think about how biased our media is here in America. Uh, that is, you know, isn't that eye-opening really to kind of think about that? You know that they're one-sided and uh, you would think that they would just because uh, the fact that the American people don't want that, you would think that they would start to be a little bit more balanced. Uh, and I would think that if, you know, if, if there was a, a, a media outlet that was really suffering like with numbers and stuff, I would be I would be a balanced one. I would really push that uh, more than the Fox News news fair balance because even they they aren't. Uh, you know I would really push that, and I would bet those numbers would go up because the mainstream uh, America, right, middle America, you know they they don't want all this crazy liberal you know stuff. You know they they want you know just to have a good life for their family and their kids 
and and they want to be able to you know know what's truly going on and there is a big big distrust of the media right now so i mean i'm always talking about alternative media that's why i created alt news hub on facebook uh you know so that you can go and you can get articles there on a regular basis it kind of just gets sent to it automatically I have the Alt News Hub on Prepper website, and like I said, I've said before, that is the second most popular uh, page on all of uh, Prepper website other than the front page, right, where everyone goes to get the, the preparedness articles. It, it's, just, it's just big. I mean, people want, you know, the good, good information, and so they, they will go into the alternative news realm. You got to be careful because there's a lot of wacko stuff out there as well, and you got to sift through it and make sure that you're getting good stuff. But uh, you know, and it's it's important out there to be informed, and he talked about that. Uh, make sure that you you are informed, and so uh, you know, he said it's a little bit easier now with the the way that the uh, uh, the internet works, and uh, we have a lot of different options. So that's really great. The other the other big takeaway for me is just the fact that we are so blessed. In America, I know that I have listeners in, in other parts of the world, and uh, I'm very grateful for you. Thank you so much. But uh, you know, here in America, I know the majority of people listening are, are, are from the United States, and we are very blessed to be able to purchase firearms. And if you're in a state or a city that really uh, you know puts a lot of regulations on you for that, forget that, man. I mean, you know, take off uh, on that one. And I know that would be hard. But, uh, you know, you want to go to a, a state that's a little bit more free. And, uh, you know, that's why I like Texas. Although I know people who think Texas is not as free as it should be. And, uh, you know, they, they like some of the other states uh, further up north. But anyway, uh, I, the big takeaway for me is that, you know, having firearms or having a weapon was, was important. There's a lot of people that didn't know how to use them in, in Selco's day, in Selco's time. And uh, now we have you know, all kinds of firearms and you have, uh, you're not very far away from a, a firing range where you can go and you can uh, shoot your, your weapon and, you know, figure out how to use it. You can get training and all that good stuff. So those are those two takeaways for me. Uh, you know, and there's a lot of good stuff here as well that you can uh, definitely uh, take a little bit of time to reflect on, on that. Uh, I don't think there's a lot of people who wouldn't want to have to uh, become violent. That that's just not where where we would want to go. So, a good article again over at theorganicprepper.com. Go check that out, and then also you can click on over to Salco's website, and he's got a lot of information as well. Hey guys, thanks so much for hanging out with me on episode 250 of the Prepper Website Podcast. Wow, can't believe it's 250 episodes. But uh, enjoying it, and I'm glad to be with you, and I'm thank you, thankful for you and uh, for your listenership and for those of you that I've been able to connect with over on uh, social media. And those of you who have sent me kind words and emails, greatly, greatly appreciate that. And uh, so we'll see about another 250 episodes uh, coming up. We're coming up on our, our one-year anniversary, February 19th. And so, uh, you know, that's uh, kind of uh, exciting for me to be able to point that out. So, uh, you know, we'll be, we'll be doing that here real, real soon. With that, guys, choose to live a more self-reliant life. Choose not to be so dependent on the government grid or the grind. Until tomorrow, stay prepped and aware. Peace.